The renewed interest in author Chris Krause's 1997 hit novel I Love Dick has been dubbed the rise of the female loser. My career was so stalled and I thought instead of looking at it as the failure of my art or of my person, it might be better to look at the conditions in the art world that led to this quote failure. Everything in the art world gets transacted under the table. I want to take it out from under the table and put it on the table. In this interview recorded at the Louisiana Literature Festival in 2017, Chris Krause talks to political activist Emma Holton about treating her own failures as a case study and about how feminism is a communal endeavor. No one is self-sufficient. You know, we should all celebrate our dependence. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Be dependent on other people, your father and brother especially. I'm Pike Melinowski and you're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. Female losers, cannibalization and art monsters are all on the menu for the next 40 minutes. Enjoy. Hello and Hi. welcome. Hi Emma, thank you. Um, I think I'm going to start out by having you read something. The thing about I Love Dick, which is the book that we're talking about today, is that it has this very personal drama between three people. Um, uh, Chris, a woman who falls in love with a man, Dick, and her husband, Silver. And there's been made a lot of talk about the, those three and their personal relationships. But the older I got, the more interested I became in a different part of I Love Dick, which is the end part, uh, that focuses a lot on art criticism, on theory, on themes on feminism, on themes of being a human being. And I want you to read, or I've asked you to read, <laughs> I'm not ordering you, um, <laughs> I would love for you to read, um, the part um, of the start of a letter called Monsters, which yes. is at the very end of the book. Okay, thank you. I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, I'm not going to read the whole thing, so I should just tell you the last line of the chapter. It ends, and I aim to be a female monster too. Um, and in this case, I guess I'm talking about art monsters, um, and I will read a little bit about the artist Hannah Wilkie. June 21st, 1995, DD for Dear Dick. This letter comes to you from Eagle Rock, Los Angeles. It's 40 miles away from where you're living, but it feels very far away. I got to LA two weeks ago, seems like forever. Constant loops from one mood to another, Loneliness and optimism, fear, ambition. Do you know the meaning of those roller coaster billboards that you see driving around the city? A black and white, slightly blurred photo of some people on a roller coaster, a red circle slash for no printed at the center. Don't know if it's some kind of public art. It's a poor attempt at menace if it is one. In New York on 7th Street, between avenues B and C, there's a plywood hoarding nailed like a canopy to some scaffolding above the entrance of a crack house. Someone's wheat pasted a poster of two men in loose black clothes leaning with guns against a high-rise patio balustrade. It's very scary. Wartime reality slammed up against the image of a new wave 60s futuristic movie. 
This is no movie, the poster seemed to say. It's Beirut, these guys are serious, and so is thug business. Walking east toward it, your eyes perform a double flip. The image of the patio seems to be protruding from the building, very trompe-l'oeil, but by the time you finally unraveled it, you're already walking past the armored door. God, what a hoot. I moved to talk to you about art because I think you'll understand, and I think I understand art more than you. Because I moved in writing to be irrepressible. Writing to you seems like some holy cause, because there's not enough female irrepressibility written down. I fused my silence and repression with the entire female gender silent and silence and repression. I think the sheer fact of women talking, being paradoxical, inexplicable, flip, self-destructive, but above all, public, is the most revolutionary thing in the world. I could be 20 years too late, but epiphanies don't always synchronize with style. But really, Dick, I moved to write you differently because everything is different now. I think of you a lot now that crossing seems inevitable. Both of us are in the LA art world, and it's small. The image that I have of you is frozen in a single snapshot. April 19th, the opening of the Jeffrey Valance, Eleanor Anton, Charles Gaines show at the Santa Monica Museum. You're standing in the largest Jeffrey Valance room, talking, drink in hand, to a knot of younger people, students, tall black shirt and Euro-cut black jacket, standard opening wear for artists. You're standing very straight, your face smushed back in against itself, smiling, talking, moving, yet imploding somehow backwards towards the immobility of the frame. You're locked. You are a country, a separate state, visible, unbridgeable. And I'm standing in a tiny cluster next to yours, a trio, Daniel Marlos and Mike Kelly, and just like you, I'm shaky. My body trembles slightly as it cuts through space, but also very present. The conquering of fear is like performance. You recognize your fear, and then you move with it. So far, I've told our story twice, late at night, as fully as I could, to Fred Dewey and Sabina Ott. It's the story of 250 letters my debasement, jumping headlong off a cliff. Why does everybody think that women are debasing ourselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement? Why do women always have to come off clean? The magnificence of Genet's last great work, The Prisoner of Love, lies in his willingness to be wrong, a city old white guy jerking off on the rippling muscles of the Arabs and Black Panthers. Isn't the greatest freedom in the world the freedom to be wrong? What hooks me in our story is our different readings of it. You think it's personal and private, my neurosis. The greatest secret in the world is there is no secret, Claire Parnay and Gilles Deleuze. I think our story is performative philosophy. The artist Hannah Wilke was born Arlene Butter in 1940 and grew up in Manhattan and Long Island. She died of cancer at the age of 52. Wilka's output was prolific and consistent. Through constant effort, she maintained a visible career. At a certain point, perhaps the early 70s, her work began addressing the following question. If women have failed to make universal art because we're trapped within the personal, 
why not universalize the personal and make it the subject of our art? To ask this question, to be willing to live it through, is still so bold. In 1974, after producing drawings, ceramics, and sculptural wall pieces, many of which involved a, quote, tough, ambiguous depiction of traditionally female imagery, Douglas Crimp, for 11 years, Hannah started to insert her own image into her art. I don't know what experiences or conditions in her life precipitated this. Was she pushed towards it by critics like Phyllis Durfner, who wrote, responding to her show of cunts fashioned out of washing machine lint at Feldman in 1972, quote, there is some wit in this, but it is swamped by aggressive ideology. The ideology is that of women's liberation. Female bodies have been shown, but only in an oppressive, sexist manner. Wilke's forthright repetitious presentation of the most intimate image of female sexuality is intended to be a cure for all this. I don't see how it's supposed to work. It is boring and superficial. Unlike Judy Chicago and her bloated vaginal renditions of great cunts in history, a show that every mother in the world could take her daughters to, Hannah was never afraid to be undignified, to trash herself, to call it cunt to cunt. I want to throw back to the audience everything the world has thrown at me, Penny Arcade. Hannah later told the Soho Weekly News how she collected material for this work over several years by doing laundry for Klaus Oldenburg, her companion at the time. Even then, Hannah was a neo-dadist. Klaus Oldberg, Oldenburg, great male universal artist, Shanghai. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Just in this two-and-a-half-page piece, we're introduced to many different people and many strong women. Um, and many times in the book, you return to this women laying themselves bare in the public, in public, and you talk about how case studies is what we must be doing if we're doing anything. And I want to ask you, how do you define a case study? Oh, well, I mean, it's simple. And anthropology, right, the classic anthropology is the anthropologist used to go off and live in the hut <laughs> with, um, you know, with the indigenous people and learn their language and learn their kinship systems and report on it. And then often in latter-day anthropology, it would become more of a particip participant observer story where the anthropologist writes her own experience and her own biases into the text. So I was, you know, I was, of course, trying to be a smart ass and crack a joke. <laughs> but I did propose in the letters, OK, if I'm going to have this experience now when I'm 39 years old that people usually have when they're 14 years old, maybe with this distance of age, I should be able to study it and turn this romance, turn my own life into a case study. And also because I'd been having, you know, my career was so stalled. And I thought, instead of looking at it as the failure of my art or of my person, it might be better to look at the conditions in the art world that led to this, quote, failure. And by doing that to myself, 
I could look at the social conditions surrounding everything else in the art world and really start to consider what makes a success, what makes a failure, what's inside, what's out, how is the game played. Really, my goal in writing the book, I used to say to Sylvia, it's like everything in the art world gets transacted under the table. I want to take it out from under the table and put it on the table. You succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, leading up to this interview and also before that, I read a lot of texts written about your work. And it seems for a lot of women, um, Dick has been um, a man that we feel like we know, but I think especially Chris has been a woman that can be very inspiring. Um, she shows you how you can fail. She shows you how a different way to be a woman in a lot of ways. I, there, there was an article in The Guardian that said that it was the rise of the female failure, um, <laughs> which I don't know if we should celebrate. I'm, I think so. Um, and I think what I wanted to ask you is that do you think it's meaningful to use Chris as an, to have her as your idol? Do you, can you be a fan of Chris? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're asking me about this idea of female failure, basically, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm asking, what are you supposed to do with the case study? How are you supposed to use it? Because you wanted to show us something. What are you supposed to do with a case study? Yeah. Well, you share it with other people, right? And then, ideally, they see their own experiences reflected in it. I mean, isn't that what fiction does? In a sense, you could say that any novel is a case study. And it's taking the intimate lives of a few characters and making them exemplary. And we identify with it, and we're fascinated, and we want to follow them. Yeah. When this book came out first in 96, it was much more difficult to make your life public um, than it is now. A lot of people spend a lot of time making their lives public, mm -hmm. and a lot of female lives are becoming public in a way that was unthinkable maybe back then. Do you think having all these case studies available has had the consequences that you hoped or thought that they would? Yeah. It's funny you ask me that, and that you asked me to read that part of the book. I haven't read that part of the book for years. And I realize that's the part of the book where it says that, you know, women talking out loud is the most radical thing in the world. Well, that can't possibly be true anymore. <laughs> it's like we should all no. just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> There's a complete overflow of information and conversation. And I, I think the key here isn't like about speaking, not speaking. A case study involves some parameters and some form and some rigor. And I think that's the difference. I mean, there's just screeds and screeds of stuff, spilling, people spilling and spilling and spilling on social media. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a case study. No. You know, it's just endless verbiage. And people had different ways of doing it then. I mean, people would like make wheat paste posters, or people would make zines, or people would like write crazy letters to the editor. People always had ways of like blabbing on. Um, <laughs> it's very easy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a work of art is not blabbing on. And the difference, I think, is if there's a conceptual agenda 
behind it. You know, yes. like if I could not even be presumptuous in, if it's not presumptuous to mention, like when you described your project to mm -hmm. me, the project with the photos, that seemed so admirable because it was like a conceptual artwork. It was oh, taking the subject and instead of blabbing on and blabbing on about it, you made a gesture that made people think about it differently. Thank you. That's yeah. true. I'm going to remember this. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's what conceptual work does. And I, I, you know, more recently, I've been interested in work that functions conceptually, that takes on other social problems. Um, I wrote about a group called Rolling Jubilee. I don't know if news of that work is spread here, but it's a group of people, mostly in New York, who came together, they met during Occupy, and they continued their work together in strike debt, and then they formed a smaller group called Rolling Jubilee, where they raised almost a million dollars to buy bundled debt in the United States that gets auctioned off to debt dealers and collectors, they would buy this and then publicly forgive it, and they'd get all this media coverage every time they did a buy, and every time they did a jubilee of forgiveness. They were shining the light on medical debt, on student debt, on credit card debt. And I mean, at what point is that an art project, and at what point is that activism? To me, that's like, it's a brilliant, you know, Capitalism is nothing if not conceptual, right? <laughs> it seems like conceptual art is the most brilliant rejoinder that art can make to the invisible flows of capital. Uh, yeah, I, I want to jump actually to my last part because um, uh, it, it relates so perfectly to what you're saying now um, about art and politics and how they go together. Uh, your most recent novel, uh, in English is this, Summer of Hate. Um, and I think it's almost difficult um, these days to not want to talk about American politics. <laughs> it seems like, uh, like a bestial murder. People are so fascinated they can't look away, you know? Um, and I think I wanted to ask you, because Summer of Hate deals very concretely with the American prison system. Um, and I want to ask you what your thoughts were on so literally including such a political theme in your work, and also not only that, but donating the proceeds from the book to an NGO that works with that. Yes. Um, Sam of Hate's a very different book than the last three. I Love Dick is the first book of a trilogy. I wrote two books after that, Aliens and Anorexia and Torpor, and they continue on the story of that couple and that milieu of the late 20th century intellectual and cultural world. Um, and then I finished with it. I mean, I pretty much, you know, written about my character's position in that world as, as, as I said everything I needed to say. Um, <laughs> time goes on, and I make my living partly as an art writer, working in the art world, writing catalog essays and art reviews. And during the Bush years, the invasion of Iraq, it was like 2004, five, and six. I remember living in LA during those years and really feeling like a Nazi collaborator. <laughs> no one in the art world was talking about what was going on. And yet, you know, 
Muslim citizens, shopkeepers, were being rounded up and charged. There, there were these preemptive arrests of people. You could be charged in these draconian, you know, these draconian new rules. If, if, if the word terrorist was in the charge, you could be just taken away for 20 years. You know, and no one would, I mean, it was completely different from the political countercultural movements of the 20th century, where there was a glamour and a legitimacy and a human face to the protesters and the dissidents. There was zero glamour to the dissidents in 2005. They were invisible. They were losers. Anybody who came out to protest the Iraq war was a loser. And the art world that I was working in was having a lot of coverage about the political, you know, talking about situationism, talking about European thought in the 20th century, not saying one word about what was happening in the United States. And somebody in our own world, an American artist, Steve Kurtz, was arrested on charges of bioterrorism. His life was absolutely ruined by this. It bankrupted him. It ruined his career. It pretty much, he was an older guy when this happened. It pretty much ruined this person's life. No art magazines wrote about it. I mean, none of the A-list, glamorous art world magazines that I was writing for even recognized that this had happened. So when I went to the Southwest during those years on other personal business, and I, I ended up spending a lot of time in the Southwest, and I got to know people because I was actually, frankly, buying and renovating apartment buildings, which is how I make a living. I, until now, I haven't really made much money as a writer, and I don't depend on it. <laughs> and I never had a tenured teaching job. So I ended up, over the years, making money um, through property management, not flipping properties, but buying a property, fixing it up, and then managing it. So. I was buying an apartment building in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and fixing it up and preparing to manage it. And that kind of brought me into this other world that I intellectually knew about, but had no real life experience of. And a person I became close to, the person who inspired the character Paul Garcia, who I hired to work for me, was just getting out of prison. And he had was in a terrible situation because you can't get a job in the US if you've been in prison. You have to get a job to meet the terms of your parole, but if you've been convicted of a felony or even charged with one, no one will give you a job. <laughs> so he was looking for like some little mom and pop employer like me who would come along and not pursue the felony thing too hard. Um, I hired him and he moved into one of my buildings and we became very close. And in a way, the character Paul Garcia is a case study of underclass experience in the US at that moment. Um, if you've, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the Truffaut movie, A Thousand Blows. Beautiful movie about a young boy who's a juvenile delinquent who never really recovers from the experience of his life. Well, I mean, the title says it's like you can maybe withstand 700 blows. You could withstand 850, but on a thousand blows, it's over. There's no coming back from it. And that's what, it's, I, I, that's what it was like for this person. That's what it's like for all these people having these experiences in jail and prison. There's so many things stacked against you. 
How do you ever come back for it? It's impossible. And so this is kind of a human reality that continues in the United States that goes on beyond, you know, behind the spectacle of electoral politics. Unfortunately, all the interest and all the focus is on electoral politics, which is just as we know a spectacle. It's nothing to do with anything. Do you think that that summer of hate is kind of um, an expression of your distaste for the apolitical art world that you used to belong to? Is it like, we have to talk about this now? Someone That's has right. to talk about it, yeah. That's right. And the writing models that I was looking to when I wrote the book were much more kind of straight ahead genre writing yeah. models. I was reading uh, the crime writer Chester Himes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, Patricia Highsmith. I was reading a lot of crime fiction. Yeah. And I tried to make the book read like a straight ahead crime novel. Yeah, and I have two quotes for you that I, that I want you to, to tell me which one you agree with the most. These are two quotes by two male artists written um, during the Second World War. And the first one is by Bertolt Brecht. And he says, what kind of times are these when to talk about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many other horrors? And another one by Leopold Staff, who was a poet who lived in the Warsaw Ghetto. He said, even more than bread, we now need poetry in a time when it seems that it is not needed at all. Which one is you? <laughs> uh, well, luckily, we're women now in the 21st century. <laughs> luckily. So we don't have to be so binary. <laughs> <laughs> we can have both. We can have our cakes. One does not exclude the other. The Brecht quote is one of my favorite quotes. It does seem very prescient now. Um, yes. I think it seems as if, um, or I have experienced this when I've, I've thought about, you know, what, what feminist themes I wanted to focus on. It seemed, you know, that talking about slut shaming seemed suddenly irrelevant when people are getting, you know, rounded up in their houses and thrown back to their countries away from their families. It's just, there's an urgency right now, I feel. Yes. And there's an urgency to talk about real things. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, so much of it quickly gets ossified into discourse, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that kills it. And I mean, maybe there should be a loop back to more realist political literature because that humanizes these conditions and it makes us understand the complexity of the human situation, and it stops us maybe from being so rhetorical and so judgmental. Yeah. Do you think that um, you talked about how in 2005 a person who was explicitly political was seen as banal or a loser? Um, have we become a little bit better than that, or do you still think that in the art scene in LA no one talks about concrete, actual politics? Yeah, it's changed. I mean, Americans in the art world has always an easy time about talking about politics in the abstract, but a difficult time with dealing with on-the-ground activist issues. Semiotext, the independent press that I'm a co-editor of with Sylvia Lotringer and Hedy Alcalti, we felt that lack, and so we started a new imprint called Active Agents, because we wanted to be able to publish things that were about topical issues happening in the United States right now. I mean, we published Franco Berardi and Christian Marazzi and a lot of really wonderful European theorists, 
but it just seemed hypocritical and hollow to publish this theory if we weren't also covering actual contemporary conditions. So one of the books on our fall list is called Carceral Capitalism by Jackie Wang. And that's a book specifically about municipal debt, the way that municipal debt is used as a new form of slavery, and about prison and jail gulag conditions in the US right now. So we want, semiotext is poetic and it's philosophical, but it's not doing its job if it's not also activist. I think that's very true. <laughs> Thank you. So with that, now let's talk about literature, <laughs> the real life. Um, I want to talk to you about a little bit about subjectivity and experience. Um, I, one of the tasks that I have in my work is that I talk to young women about feminism and about feminist theory. Um, and some of it seems very foreign to them, but one of the things that they resonate with a lot is the theme called self-spectatorship which is this experience of, especially they mention it while having sex or being intimate with a man in some sort of way, that you see yourself from the outside, um, so, you, so as you're not able to experience your, the sensations with your body. And it seems to me that in I Love Dick, there is this movement where um, Chris is struggling with seeing herself from the outside, but also sensing things from the inside. And I was interested in, do you think it is ever possible uh, for us to fully experience something without also having the outside look on us? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. In I Love Dick, I guess I talk about it a little bit as the dilemma of the pretty girl. And so the narrator is taking the position that, well, she was never a pretty girl anyway. <laughs> People didn't treat her that way. She never came to have that sense of herself. She was always treated as someone kind of homely and plain. And so she never had to deal with that disparity between inside and outside. Her sense of herself was more androgynous. But the book that you brought, The Theory of the Young Girl, that talks about this problem so brilliantly because they're suggesting that that condition, that kind of narcissistic condition of the young girl who's always performing for an audience, it's a hologram, it's a construct. It has nothing to do with a real person, doesn't even really have to do with age or gender. It's more a marketing condition, right? The condition yeah. of the young girl, this is a metaphor for consumer life. You know, that consumer life is always meant to be lived for an audience and never for oneself. Yeah, and I think that really ties well together with what we talked about in the beginning with what the conditions are for making your life public now. It seems that all the lives that we see are being made public are lives that cater exactly to the needs of the market, the needs of some sort of male gaze, the need of, you know, getting um, some sort of, you know, acceptance from the outside world. And it seems very difficult for young women today, also for me, I think for a lot of people, to um, actually perform a paradoxical personality. Because um, we're seen as you have to have a very strict identity. And I think that leads me to another question, because in 
in feminism in general, uh, or it's very popular in feminism, I think it's, uh, yes, um, it's, <laughs> it's on this quote. Um, Chris doesn't hear so well, so we write down the questions uh, already. Um, and I want to, to talk to you about a Simone Weil, um, Weil or Wheel. I've only read it. I don't know. I'll fail, fail. And Simone Weil says that since the eye is the only thing we truly own, why not use it? Use the eye to break down the eye. And I find this incredibly interesting because in most feminist rhetoric today, what people say is you must try find out who you truly are. You know, look beyond the norms, the patriarchy, and find your true self. And I'm wondering, is that really even possible or an interesting goal at all? I don't think so. No. <laughs> I don't think so. And people have responded to this in so many different ways in the fashion world. Um, are you familiar with a group here called K-Hole? who came out of New York. They were young people who were really artists and writers, but they were making a living as branding consultants, <laughs> which is, you know, the all digital market. Do you call yourself digital marketer? No. Because, no. I mean, most, most of my younger friends in New York who are freelancing, oh, that's digital. really how they make a living. Digital marketing. Yeah. Of themselves or stuff? No, I mean, in a way. <laughs> in a way, <laughs> or else being representative of their class and generation to market researchers and helping them market to people like them. Oh, they're consulting. Yeah, ah. like consulting. Okay. Yeah, anyway, so these people in K-Hole, that's what they found themselves doing for a living. They were consulting to brands. And so they did these conceptual artworks that were like parodies of the reports that they created for Nike and Adidas and the other brands. But they were really brilliant. They made up a whole trend called Normcore. Normcore. Oh, that's yeah. where Normcore comes from. Yeah, that's where Normcore comes yeah, from. Yeah, that came to Denmark like four years yeah, later. Yeah, so Normcore <laughs> came here. Yeah, but I mean, so what is Normcore except a rejoinder towards this, against this, this, this pressure, this constant pressure towards individuality, yeah, right? You don't want to dress as an individual. You want to dress to just blend in and camouflage and disappear, right? Yeah. So, so this, you know, this, this, this pressure towards um, finding one's true self and everything, it's such a consumerist pressure. Yeah, and it's very, very geared towards seeing yourself almost as a brand, right? It's a, it seems that kind of life coaching language has found its way into feminism. Um, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons current feminism is so easily made commercial, because <laughs> it's all about realizing yourself. Um, and I think I wanted to ask you, because I think, um, of course, through no fault of yours, that um, many people read Dick, I Love Dick that way, that Chris is finding herself. I want to hear your thoughts on that. It's funny, that never occurred to me when I wrote the book or published it, but they're not wrong, <laughs> you know? I realize now that the book, one of the things that it does, and maybe most strongly for some people, is it is a kind of Biltongsroman, right? <laughs> it's the story of the woman finding herself in middle age. 
And I mean, I, maybe because I was the woman, I never quite saw it that way. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm writing about Guatemala. I'm writing about feminism. <laughs> um, but of course it's in the book. It's right there. And when it was adapted to a TV show, of course that's the most adaptable thing for a commercial TV show is that story of the woman discovering herself through the crush. Yeah, and I think this, this idea of discovering yourself um, is, is extremely interesting um, because another theme in, in a lot of current feminism is this theme of being very self-sufficient, of um, not being depending on anyone else or not depending on anyone else's expressions of you. And there's this other Simone Weil um, quote that I want to, to read to you um, which is, it's kind of a small story. She says, two prisoners whose cells adjoin communicate with each other by knocking on the wall. The wall is the thing which separates them, but is also their means of communication. Every separation is a link. And I feel that there is a lot of this in I Love Dick. <laughs> it feels as if when Dick and, and Chris are the most apart, that's where the most creativity is. That's where stuff yes. happens. And I feel, aren't young women, aren't we selling ourselves a little short by having it as a goal to be completely self-sufficient? No, that's a terrible goal. <laughs> um, a lot of women are pushing back against that now. Um, Melissa Gordon in London has a really great project called We Not Us. Um, it's a feminist project. And there's the magazine out of Amsterdam, you probably get it here, called Girls Like Us. Yeah. Where they have people from all walks of life, all generations, not just writers and artists and fashion models. It's very mm -hmm. inspiring. I mean, it's a definitely, it uses feminism as a way of recasting a more desirable picture of the world. Um, but in terms of writing, I don't think that I could have become a writer <laughs> if I hadn't stumbled upon writing these letters to Dick. Because writing is also very relational. You know, I tried at various points to write and it always kind of dead-ended because I didn't know who I was writing to. And if you're writing a letter, that question goes away. You know, you're writing to who you're writing to. And who you're talking to always dictates who you'll speak to, you know, how you're going to talk, right? Yeah. So the greatest gift that you can have as a writer is to have someone to write to. Yeah. And I think maybe when people go to writing programs in schools, the program becomes the who they're writing to. They're writing to the teacher and the other people in the program. But it's totally relational, as you say. And I, I think that this, that's a very false goal in feminism. Uh, no one is self-sufficient. Self you know, we should all celebrate our dependence. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Be dependent on other people, your father and brother especially. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who are you writing to now? Because obviously your, your new works aren't concretely letters in that way. When, you, when you're writing Summer of Hate, for example, which is much more a novel in a classic sense with like a beginning and an ending, <laughs> uh, who are you writing to now? I just, I, I do still write to specific people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very lucky that I've had, I have such a great relationship with my editor at Semiotext, Hedy Alcalti. I mean, we're collaborators and friends, um, so it's not a working, it's, it's a personal relationship first. And um, 
I really feel like I've written a lot of my work to Hetty. He's oh. my first reader. And uh, we have such a kind of shared understanding and pool of cultural references. Sometimes I feel as if I'm writing something for Hetty, something that he might think, and I'm writing it for him. And I felt that with Sylvia too. Yeah. I mean, anyone that I get close enough to that I kind of know their desires and how their head works and how that loops into my desires, then the writing becomes a way to amplify that. Yeah. I think that what's very interesting, especially about I Love Dick, is that um, I think a lot of people read, or I know this, read I Love Dick and feel like it was written by themselves, <laughs> feel incredibly um, represented and seen by Chris as a figure. Um, and I think I'm just curious if you were expecting so many, so many people to resonate with that person, um, seeing as she seems to be a case study of a person who is rarely seen, um, and at least is something that is very rare in art, this female who is so out there and so limitless. Yeah, well, that feeling of people identifying with a book, um, I felt that as a reader when I read Kathy Acker's work. Oh, yes. Yeah, when I was in my uh, early 20s and had just moved to New York, Kathy's work was circulating a lot in the East Village, and I didn't know her personally, but I picked up her books, and I felt her voice in my body as if it was a smarter, better version of myself <laughs> saying my innermost thoughts. And that's a fangirl thing, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, otherwise known as, like, to read like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like a very formative experience to have an idol, right? To be a fan of someone. And, and I think when I think of your work, um, it seems as if it has gotten um, an actual genre now, uh, fan fiction. Yeah. Are you familiar with this? Um, young girls, girls especially, who write long, long texts and essays and sometimes even novels with famous people, and they're in love with them, um, or say that they're in love with them, and they have these magnificent um, artistic endeavors with these people who are in real life, but who they imagine. Right. And it seems as if it's really becoming an outlet for female desire, especially for young girls' desire, right? Um, yeah. And I... Yeah. But... But... There's also something... It sounds very naive. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also something quite genius about it, because they're cannibalizing these other people, <laughs> you know? By forming such an attachment to that other person and fantasizing them, you're eating them alive. You're yeah. internalizing them. You're becoming the part of that person that you most admire and that you most want for yourself. And what is everybody trying to do in life if not become larger? Yeah. You know? And that is something about getting outside of the limits of your own background and ego and becoming other people. I mean, there's greatest pleasure in the world <laughs> is to feel that you can become other people. Yep. So maybe I cannibalized Kathy a little bit. Well, I wrote her biography, and it's coming out this month in the US and the UK. And I went back and I saw all the different people that Kathy cannibalized herself <laughs> to become a writer. It's an endless circle. I mean, really, that's the whole Western tradition of literature 
is one writer cannibalizing another, one artist becoming another. I mean, it, that, that's what we're talking about when we say lineage. It's just like Karl-Uwe Knausgaard cannibalized you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every good idea he had, he got from you. <laughs> no, but I'm, did, have you ever felt that anyone has, has cannibalized on your life, that you've seen yourself represented in art and become shocked and surprised by it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is it too intimate to talk about? What do you mean? Do you want to tell us where in, in what art pieces you have seen yourself? In oh, what art pieces? Yes. Well, what art pieces I've cannibalized. Or what, which have cannibalized you? Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely Kathy. Yeah. Um, poets that I read, um, Ted Berrigan, Alice, um, pretty much all the New York School and post-New York School poets. Eileen Miles, before she and I became friendly, I really inhaled her work. It was like it was in my body. Eileen's voice was in my body. Um, so it ha I mean, it happens still. Yeah. <laughs> you find new things yeah. that you eat. Yeah. It I mean, when you see something really powerful, that's what happens. It changes you. I mean, when people say about a record or a movie or a book, it changed my life. My partner, who is not in the art world, he's a psychologist, he makes fun of me um, every time I say, it changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's what we mean when we say it changed my life. It, you know, it moved you in such a way that it's going to stay with you for a long time. It's going to become part of who you are. That experience of having witnessed that artwork, that's become part of who you are. I'm told we have to end now. Oh. <laughs> But I can say for sure, um, your work changed my life. <laughs> And I'm so glad to I got to talk to you. Thank you so much all for coming. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Chris Krauss visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2017, where she was interviewed by Emma Holten. The interview was edited by Roxanne Bergeschieren-Lerkesen and produced by Christian Lund. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by the Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Melinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>